You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. President Joe Biden promised an ambitious immigration agenda during the campaign. Within 100 days, I'm going to send to the United States Congress a pathway to citizenship for over 11 million undocumented people. But his first steps in that direction hit a legal roadblock put up by the state of Texas. In a sign of the many legal battles to come, Texas sued to stop the new administration's 100-day pause on deportations of undocumented immigrants. And in a swift legal defeat for the administration, a Texas judge temporarily blocked the moratorium. Joining me is immigration law expert Rick Sue, a professor at the University of North Carolina Law School. Rick, this order by Judge Drew Tipton, a Trump appointee, were you surprised that the judge issued this order? So initially I was surprised, right, because my understanding was that this challenge was primarily based on agreement, and I just thought that not only was agreement legally unenforceable, but that for the judge to rule so quickly on this without argument, without sort of going through everything would be too quick. After reading it, though, I realized that the order was a lot more limited. It certainly did not address this unprecedented agreement between Texas and the federal government, but in some ways was more closely situated to something that we've seen a lot. This is based on the APA, the Administrative Procedures Act, the federal statute. It seems to be following the same kind of strand that was used against the Trump administration with regard to the executive orders and policies that were issued under his administration. So explain the judge's reasoning. So the judge's reasoning, um, there were two points that he sort of latched onto, because in order to even get a temporary restraining order, there has to be some sense that the party is likely to prevail on the merits. Not really addressing the merits, but they have to address it sort of indirectly for that particular standard. And the two points, one was that the 100-day pause violated a provision of the federal law on immigration, the Immigration Nationality Act, which actually requires individuals with final orders of deportation to be removed within 90 days, right? That certain individuals then within the pause would not be removed within 90 days, and that this violates the federal law. And therefore, the policy that violates it would then be an Administrative Procedure Act problem. I'm happy to talk about that because I think in some ways it might be a misreading of the memo, or at least in my opinion, but nonetheless, that's the first claim. The second claim that was made is actually similar to the Supreme Court case with regard to the Trump administration's efforts to roll back DACA. Now, if you recall from that case, what the Supreme Court held was that the justification that was given was insufficient. There wasn't sufficient reason for why they were rolling back DACA, irrespective of the other issues around it. And in some ways, they're making the same argument here, that the explanation that was given for the need for a 100-day pause was not sufficiently articulated, was not satisfactory to the court, and therefore the court thought that it was likely to be ruled arbitrary and capricious, which would violate the Administrative Procedures Act. Again, I have some quibbles with that particular interpretation, but nonetheless, these are at least grounded within things that we've seen before, as opposed to this agreement, which the court itself said raises all sorts of constitutional questions, and he is not going to rule on that at this point. Just to clarify, the agreement you're referring to is one the Trump administration signed with conservative states in its final week. The Texas AG claims the Department of Homeland Security agreed to consult with Texas before making any changes to deportation regulations. How unusual would that be? So this is very unusual. Not only this idea that the federal government would delegate, right, this sort of obligation to both consult with a particular state or even a particular locality, 
but also even the obligation that in this particular agreement that they would hold off in making any decisions for six months. They would have to announce it, wait six months, and get consultation. Clearly, this is a last-minute sort of effort by the Trump administration to try to hamstring any policy changes by the Biden administration. And in this case, they're doing it through this agreement, through contract, not even through a policy or a statute. Personally, I don't see how this agreement that Texas is suing on would be enforceable, but it certainly sets up the general framework, which is the kind of politics that we're going to see around immigration and other issues going forward, which is state attorney generals and Republican states sort of taking up the mantle to challenge the federal government. So the Justice Department lawyer said Texas is asking to run federal immigration law. Is that the basic argument that the Justice Department is going to put forward here, or are there other arguments? Yeah, there's lots of arguments for why this agreement, this contract, this last-minute contract that was signed by the outgoing Department of Homeland Security is not enforceable. But I think the Justice Department is right in this sort of broader case is all these arguments sort of circle around the idea that the federal government cannot delegate or relinquish, you know, some sovereign power over policy, either the executive in terms of their discretion or even the whole federal government in terms of making policy to a state. I mean, you know, to go through some of the many arguments, right? I mean, one is whether or not the Department of Homeland Security can even enter into this agreement to bind the federal government or bind a future administration as the Trump administration is trying to do. The agency only has the power that is delegated to Congress. And I can't find any particular delegation by statute that allows the DHS to bind its own power or even bind the federal government in this way. Not to mention that, but we're talking about doing this through contract. And we have to remember that contract is not usually how governmental policies are made. It's made through statute. And in fact, the federal government has sovereign immunity. You can't usually sue the federal government unless it gives permission for that suit in contract or towards. Um, and in this particular case, uh, I, you know, there has been provisions to allow certain suits on contract for government contracts or services or goods, uh, but not for this kind of policy contract or how policy could get made. Third, even if it was delegated, right, even if, you know, somehow Congress allows this kind of binding agreement to be made, um, this it could run afoul of just the basic non-delegation doctrine, right, which is to say that there are just certain responsibilities and powers. And when it comes to immigration, we know it's an exclusive federal responsibility. It just, you know, these powers can't be delegated, right? You can't just sort of take a bunch of federal government powers and then through contract delegate it to a state or delegate it, heck, to presumably through contract to like a private industry. Uh, these are powers that the government has, uh, and there are processes by which those are changed. Uh, but to sort of strip that kind of power, that sovereignty, uh, and give it to another institution. This kind of delegation has never been tried, but even other types of delegations have run afoul of the non-delegation doctrine for separation of powers issues or federalism issues. So this runs without all of these, um, uh, and even just the basic idea of uh, the sovereign power of the federal government here uh, be given to arguably a state, and not even just a state, to an attorney general. All these agreements are signed with attorney generals, right, which itself raises another set of issues. Hasn't the Supreme Court, the Roberts Court in particular, very much said that immigration is a federal matter, not the states? Yeah. Yeah. And not just, I mean, this is well established in uh, a sort of constitutional law by many Supreme Courts, but even recently, right, the Supreme Court has sort of reaffirmed and reasserted that this is a federal power and that uh, states cannot regulate immigration. And in this case, the argument would be they can't regulate immigration uh, 
when the federal government tries to sort of delegate that power to them. In fact, we have a more recent decision. It didn't get to the Supreme Court, but it was decided most recently uh, in the Fourth Circuit. And this was when uh, the Trump administration gave veto power to states and localities, whether with regard to refugees that would be settled within those states and localities. Um, so not exactly an agreement, but nonetheless, the policy was that unless a state or locality agreed to accept refugees, they wouldn't put any refugees there. And that was challenged again, again, you know, on the basis that this goes against congressional statute and goes against the sort of power that's delegated to the agency. And most recently, the Fourth Circuit found that to say that, you know, the statute says that you must consult, but does not allow you to make your decisions on the basis or delegate those decisions to the states or localities. And essentially, they argue that's what the Trump administration is trying to do. So we seem to have, you know, an earlier attempt uh, that might also be of consequence in the enforcement of this specific agreement. There might be an objection because Ken Cuccinelli signed this as senior official performing duties of deputy secretary. And so did he have legal authority to even sign it, or is it a violation of the Federal Vacancies Reform Act? Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. And, of course, there's been other litigation about actions taken uh, by Cuccinelli uh, on the basis that he does not actually have uh, the power uh, to hold that office or to bind the uh, department, right, that he's uh, he's overseeing, right, or, or not overseeing, I guess, under the law. Uh, so that does raise another issue. And I would think that, you know, even on top of that, right, to enter into the agreement to make this particular policy, this reminds me of the DACA reversal that the Supreme Court also reversed recently, right? I mean, this came out of the blue. Uh, it's not clear there was much consultation, uh, much sort of, uh, you know, agency, uh, certainly not standard agency rulemaking in, in this particular case. So not only is it, does Cuccinelli have the power, but is the process that he went through uh, in this case also problematic? It makes sense as a last minute sort of, last minute bomb, I think, sort of left for the Biden administration. But from a legal matter, this is not how we usually imagine agencies operating. Getting back to the judge's order. What about your quibbles? Tell us what your quibbles are. Now, it is important to note that although certainly most law enforcement uh, offices and prosecutors have prosecutorial discretion, it is important to note that Congress has limited that discretion somewhat when it comes to immigration. Essentially, what it says is that Congress has said that once a final order of removal has been issued and exhausted all the appeals, that the government shall, which the court emphasizes, shall remove the individual within 90 days. There are some small exceptions, but they don't apply here. Now, on the face, it does seem like, as the court said, that the 100-day pause would violate that provision. The reason why I had a quibble was because if you read the memo carefully, the memo actually does provide an exception for individuals who may be subject to this 90-day shall-be-removed provision and says that individuals who maybe have to be removed as a matter of law should be exempted from the policy. So it actually seems to me that the policy itself accommodates this particular law, at least in the way that it will be implemented. And of course, this is very early on the challenge, right? So we don't even have a case where they violated that law that we can point to. So it seems interesting that the court would enjoin or at least restrain the entire memo even though the memo doesn't seem to violate this provision that they're pointing to. So, again, I'm assuming that in further rounds this might come up. I don't know if the court will sort of unravel, but at least from my reading, it seems to be actually in compliance with that law. 
Can a judge in Victoria, Texas, force the federal government to take affirmative action regarding immigration, force the federal government to deport people? This is the sort of million-dollar question here. You know, any comparisons drawn with regard to the nationwide injunctions issued against the Trump administration kind of buckles a little bit here because the injunction in those other cases, most injunctions against the government is to prevent them from doing something, right? To sort of maintain what they're doing. But this actually is different. Presumably, what Texas wants is actually to force the federal government to continue to do deportation. Now, what I think here is that it's not entirely clear that even the means of the order or the rationale behind the order can actually force that affirmative action to happen. Now, it could be that the Biden administration just says, okay, the policy is restrained, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we are forced in every case and our exercise of discretion to remove everyone immediately. And in my opinion, it doesn't seem like the restraining order on the policy would actually get that far. So Judge Tipton said nationwide injunctions of executive action are a topic of fierce and ongoing debate. Even so, he issued a nationwide injunction. This is in some ways going to be an interesting play out because obviously the criticism during the Trump administration when nationwide injunctions were being issued against Trump administration policies, uh, the most of the criticism was from the right and conservative leaning judges, right? Uh, now, they made their claims sort of broadly, you know, sort of in terms of federal power and the power of small district courts and forum shopping uh, and the ability for, you know, sort of a, a very early preliminary injunction to sort of pause federal policy. Well, now the table's turned. And it seems like despite all those concerns that were raised before, uh, that certainly at least with regard to this judge and Texas's interest, uh, they seem to be following into the same exact sort of playbook. What I'm curious about the debate over nationwide injunctions is now that the administrations have changed, you know, will the Supreme Court or even, let's say, conservative jurists suddenly change their minds? Or are they going to continue, which seems to be where they were headed, this sort of principle that they were headed towards, which is disfavoring nationwide injunctions, uh, especially when it affects national federal government policy? So I think that's a way to be seen, right? Is part of the ship going to rule on this or some sort of principles? Um, And I would say the track record has not been so great, for my opinion, uh, as a person that tries to commit uh, to sort of these principles and teach my students, you know, neutral principles of law. Uh, But I'd be interested in what a Supreme Court actually does uh, with regard to this kind of reversal and partisan power. Biden is issuing a lot of executive orders with regard to immigration. Can Republican attorneys general attack those orders in the same way? And stop his immigration reforms in that way. Yeah, so there's sort of two things I think this order suggests. I certainly believe if they actually have some sort of favorable ruling, which again, I will still commit to, I don't see how, on the agreement, uh, then there would be broad range attacks on all sorts of things. On this particular order, however, though, you know, Texas got its first win, if you will, it seems like it's still easily worked around. That I think a lot of the executive orders in general, uh, but certain uh, agency actions in immigration, would be able to avoid it. So, uh, for example, in avoiding this uh, 90 days, that's just one aspect of deportation. This doesn't affect, let's say, the border wall policy or even policies on whether or not to bring charges against an individual for removal or whether to stay a removal. All those are still in play. Second, the argument that was raised here, which, again, I don't – I actually think the memo explains it much better than – 
that, that, that most agency actions does, but at least with regard to the argument here that it's arbitrary and capricious because it wasn't sufficiently explained. The funny thing about the January 20 memo is actually it was a precursor to a guidance coming out on February 1st. It's interesting that both Texas and the courts didn't even wait for the February 1st guidance, but I understand politically why. But it could really be easily that once the February 1st guidance comes out, it has more time to explain why the 100-day pause is necessary. Uh, or once the 100 days are over, another policy to come out to explain the priorities of the ongoing administration, that at least that second issue that the court found here would go away. Uh, this could go away on February 1st. I mean, I don't know what the court will rule, but it seems to be something that the Biden administration can do, which is just offer a fuller explanation, which in this case, I think they're both uh, willing uh, and more capable of doing than it seemed like with the rescission of DACA, where the Trump administration seemed actually really disinclined to give uh, a policy rationale for that, probably because of the weird politics behind it. So now this is a temporary restraining order. The judge is going to hold yeah. a hearing on a preliminary injunction. Yeah. Since part of it, of the temporary restraining order, is a finding that Texas would succeed in a temporary injunction, it, does it seem as if a temporary injunction is the next thing that's going to happen? It, it, it seems to be. Um, my only sort of, you know, hesitation, not hesitation, but the only thing I'm waiting to see is whether or not both the government and uh, the court uh, decides to wait for the February 1st guidance to come out, because I think it is very possible that at least the, uh, the, the Biden administration can use the February 1st guidance uh, to address the concerns that were raised uh, in issuing the temporary restraining order. Um, uh, certainly, I think the court can move fast again and try to you know, get the preliminary injunction out before the February 1st guidance. I think as a matter of principle, I don't see why he would. Uh, but I think, you know, if you were to wait for the February 1st guidance, that uh, it may be that they could get around it. But, but then again, you know, given how fast that the court has moved and given how fast sort of Texas wants to celebrate this, uh, it, it may be that even if there were further guidance provided uh, that addresses this, that the court will still issue a preliminary injunction, uh, if anything, just to hold up the Biden administration. One thing to note here uh, is that the agreement itself that's so controversial was intended to hold off Biden administration changes for six months. What I'm seeing now is even if the agreement is unenforceable at the end, these kind of legal maneuvers that they're doing, like that Texas is doing, may through preliminary injunction and just litigation time hold up Biden administration changes, or at least try to for six months. Uh, achieving the same goal, but through this sort of procedure of litigation. Uh, and even if these cases end up losing at the circuit level or at the Supreme Court level, uh, they would have had that block, uh, which is, seems to be their goal uh, uh, more than necessarily getting a particular policy in place. Interesting. If a preliminary injunction is issued, one assumes that the Biden administration will appeal that. They'll be appealing to the Fifth yeah. Circuit, which is the most conservative circuit in the country, I believe. Yes. Are, are they likely to find an unfriendly court there? Yeah. This, again, I think is hard to say, right? I mean, I certainly think in terms of policy, I think in terms of, you know, sort of understanding or preferences with regard to immigration policy, I think the first ticket would be generally considered uh, unfavorable. Um, and then, you know, maybe the appeal goes up to the Supreme Court. On the other hand, you know, it does raise this question of, you know, are circuit court judges or even the Supreme Court justices going to stick to a long-term strategy, right? And they're concerned about nationwide injunctions 
uh, 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 and sort of sort of trying to tamp those down. Um, so I, I, I think in some ways it's not just the sort of partisan leaning of the judges that may be assigned to the panel, uh, but also whether or not, despite their partisan leaning, are they going to be thinking in a short-term partisan perspective or a long-term uh, sort of, you know, what do we actually want to see in terms of what courts can do, uh, regardless of who's uh, in the administration uh, the, uh, at that particular point. Wouldn't yeah. the Supreme Court have a hard time, though, when in cases like the, you know, the Muslim ban – they finally allowed that to go through. And yeah. this is not something for the states. This is a federal government issue. Yeah, I mean, I think that's going to be the test. And, and, and when I talked about the February 1st guidance or what the Biden administration may do sort of going forward, I mean, we have to remember the, the, the Muslim ban that the Supreme Court review was version three, right? They had tried once and then they tried again and then they did a third one with all these explanations. And it was the third one that passed, right? So I was assuming even for this case, you know, it's not going to be this memo that will ultimately be reviewed, right? What will be reviewed is, you know, either the February 1st guidance or some other further guidance that comes down the road. Presumably, if the Supreme Court sticks to its, you know, uh, precedent, uh, it would review that third one. And, you know, just needing to offer an explanation is actually not that hard to do if you're willing to offer that explanation, right? Um, so it would appear to me that if it does go that far, that just like the Muslim ban, uh, that the Biden administration will prevail here. But, but let's not also forget, it was a long road to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court can choose whether or not to take a case or not. So it could be, again, if it's a delayed tactic, that you know similar results can be produced just by in the delay of the litigation. Um, one thing we're going to see similar between the Biden administration and the Trump administration is the Trump administration kept trying to accelerate its cases in facing these uh, district court uh, injunctions and try to get it up to the Supreme Court as fast as possible. Um, and although there were criticism against that in terms of you know letting it go through the regular process, I suspect Biden administration is going to feel the same if the same tactic and strategy is being used as Texas is doing here to hold up uh, a lot of these uh, agency decisions from going forward. Do you see this lawsuit and the agreement as an indication that the tug of war over immigration is going to continue in the Biden administration? I think what's important about this agreement and the setup that it creates is that it sets up a roadmap in which future Biden administration policies on immigration is going to be facing a wave of state attorney generals really suing on any small change. And I see this as essentially the setup as the immigration hawks and the GOP is retreating to state attorneys generals and to the state level. So we're likely to see another wave of state federal litigation. Again, whether or not they succeed or not, it is important, I believe, as political messaging and as sort of showing that there is a challenge to the federal government and to the Biden administration. It seems similar to what the Democratic attorneys general did during the Trump administration. Interesting enough, it's certainly not limited to immigration, but I think in immigration, you have an interesting development. You know, when the federal government became dependent and in some ways reliant on state and local participation for immigration enforcement, what they also opened up is a sphere of immigration debates that is no longer limited to the halls of Congress or the decision makers and lawmakers of federal government. So in some ways, the solicitation for assistance now has changed the framework for immigration debates so that whether it's blue states and Republican red federal government or the reverse, that essentially immigration policy is now always at the edge of the state and federal relationship. So it's interesting how cooperation reliance has now built 
and sort of reshape the political landscape. We're likely going to see it going forward under the Biden administration, just as we saw it in the reverse under the Trump administration. Rick, where does DACA stand right now? So DACA is in a strange position, right? So one thing to note is that no, the Supreme Court, at least, has not uh, at this point uh, determined that DACA itself is uh, legal or constitutional. Uh, what it determined was that Trump's trying to reverse it violated the Administrative Procedure Act, but sort of uh, did not actually decide on that particular legal question of whether or not DACA itself is legal. I suspect that we're going to see another wave, uh, and this particular lawsuit on this agreement suggests that states are going to be active, uh, another wave of litigation that challenges that. Uh, and that also makes sense that Biden, you know, even though he is going to uphold uh, DACA right now, uh, that Biden's first instinct right now is to get a bill through Congress. Uh, certainly his bill proposed is on a much bigger topic with regard to immigration reform and unauthorized immigrants generally. Uh, but I would suspect that within it is an attempt to, if he can't get that bigger reform, uh, to get DACA and the DREAM Act passed specifically. So that makes sense that he wants congressional authorization, because I think it is still an open question, especially at the Supreme Court level, of whether or not DACA itself uh, is legal, a question that they did not answer in the last uh, case. What are like some of the big points of immigration legislation that Biden wants to pass? So. So in the latest proposal, it's quite broad. Uh, so it's not limited to the dreamers. In fact, it would uh, be closer to Reagan's 1986 um, amnesty provision in granting a path to citizenship to uh, almost everyone who is an unauthorized immigrant who arrived before a certain time uh, and, of course, has uh, not been convicted of a felony, uh, has paid your taxes and, and other sort of provisions that go with it. Uh, but unlike, let's say, DACA uh, or the DREAM Act, it's not limited to just people who arrived as children. Um, in some ways, this is uh, imagined to be a, a reset, if you will, of, uh, you know, the fact that to, to recognize the fact that we've tolerated this growing population of unauthorized immigrants who don't fit into any legal category, right, who have been here for a long time, uh, but don't fit into any sort of understanding of, you know, either immigration category or citizens uh, to sort of acknowledge that they are, in fact, de facto uh, sort of America's to some degree. Um, so this seems to be a recognition of that. Um, I think in some ways that's a strong opening gambit, right? Uh, uh, because I believe uh, uh, even though there's been strong consensus behind the dreamers, even among Republicans, uh, with regard to the entire or, you know, the, the majority of unauthorized immigrants, uh, 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 there is sharp divisions there uh, based on party lines. Turning to another immigration issue, the wall. First of all, is the whole border walled off now? No, no. So the vast majority of the wall construction was in areas that were already fenced. Um, so, uh, you know, he would say that there were wall construction, but, you know, others may argue that there was sort of like rehabilitation or sort of reinforcement. And, of course, in some ways, in terms of the new areas that the wall built, uh, my understanding is less than 100 miles uh, at this particular point, right? So in some ways, in terms of the areas that have been, uh, you know, sort of fenced or walled, it actually hasn't changed all that much. Uh, before the wall construction to after the wall construction, right? Even though the areas that are fenced now have not been reinforced with this particular wall. 
And the truth is that makes sense. I mean, there were areas that were not fenced were areas that were difficult to fence and those difficulties still persisted. Um, and in some ways that's what the Biden administration in canceling it is sort of suggesting that, that those money that were uh, sort of taken from other pots, more specifically Department of Defense, uh, should not be sort of spent in this particular manner, especially in the areas where new wall construction would be quite expensive and not entirely clear that they would be necessary. Uh, but in terms of new wall construction, or, you know, it's really, I would say, since the Bush administration, it's, you know, the areas that have been walled has not been substantially increased under the Trump administration. I've been reading about environmentalists complaining that, you know, they're destroying environmental sites and they're doing things that destroy the habitat for endangered yes. species. Yeah, that's the biggest concern right now, right? The new areas of wall construction that they were moving onto that Trump sort of accelerated towards the end of his term uh, were areas that were hard to build uh, and areas that were either private property or environmentally sensitive areas. Uh, certainly, Trump waived uh, all sorts of uh, environmental uh, uh, restrictions and, um, uh, and checks in order to sort of accelerate it. Um, so in some ways, the, the interesting thing is a lot of destruction happened in the last few months of the Trump administration in accelerating this development, but it's not clear that a wall will be built. So what we got actually, and why I think Biden was very aggressive in just stopping work as soon as he can, was all this destruction and all this effort that was going into it, even though ultimately there's not going to be any wall there, but the destruction will still persist. Um, so that's what they were moving into in terms of the areas of new construction. So why didn't Biden stop it immediately? I mean, my understanding there is that the work should have been stopped immediately with regard to some of the more aggressive work that was done. But there was uh, a seven days, I believe. The ultimate pause could not be beyond seven days. So uh, it seemed to give the agencies that were in charge of this some discretion within the seven days. Uh, but my understanding is that the order was sort of as early as possible, but no later than seven days. Uh, it's hard to figure right now out exactly how Department of Homeland Security is executing that executive order. Uh, but I think Biden made clear uh, that he wanted it, if all possible, to be immediate and just provided the seven days as a, a little bit of a grace period if you know certain projects can't be stopped immediately. Or that uh, you can imagine, right, that you know, certain things might... Uh, uh, have to be kind of seen forward because to stop immediately may be worse uh, than to sort of, you know, finish uh, whatever they were doing in a particular situation. But, but it seemed like DHS was ordered to stop things that can be stopped as early as possible. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Rick. That's Professor Rick Sue of the University of North Carolina Law School. A high school football coach insists that he has the right to kneel down and pray on the 50-yard line after a game. And he's taken his case to the Supreme Court once already. Now the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals will decide whether Joe Kennedy's prayer is the sort of private religious act protected by the Constitution's free speech clause or whether the prayer at the focal point of a public school event is the kind of public speech the school district has the right to restrict. The lawsuit against the Washington State School District could clarify and shape the workplace free speech rights of millions of coaches, teachers, and other public employees of all faiths in the circuit. Joining me is Stephanie Barkley, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. If this were done in a classroom, what he did on the field, is it clear that it would not be protected speech? So if a teacher were to offer a prayer in the classroom in a way that is you know, really pressuring or coercing students 
to participate, then the Supreme Court's case law definitely suggests that that would violate the Establishment Clause. It's not clear, though, however, that if a, a teacher sitting at their desk at the front of the classroom said a quiet prayer over their lunch, for example, that that would violate the Establishment Clause. And Justice Alito analogized what the coach in this case is doing to sort of a, a quiet private prayer of that type. So even within the classroom where the Establishment Clause protections are heightened, it's not as though the rule clearly is that a teacher must be precluded from doing anything religious. So explain what the coach's argument is. He has a few arguments. He's arguing, first of all, that there's no captive audience when he goes to pray at the 50-yard line after a game to just sort of give thanks for how the game went. He's not requiring anyone to participate. The audience isn't stuck there in the way that students are in a classroom. And so some of the coercive elements that we worry about in the classroom just don't apply in this particular context. And he's also arguing about the sort of slippery slope arguments on the other side, that if anything a teacher or coach does anytime they're within eyesight of students, then that's going to count as something that's within their official job capacity. So that, that really crowds out the ability for individuals in these positions to have any sort of religious exercise or to act consistent with their faith. So the school district says, in part in its response, that it would be violating the First Amendment prohibition against state establishment of religion if it allowed these prayers to go on. Well, some of the Supreme Court precedent under the Establishment Clause, dating back to a case called Everson, is concerned about ways in which government might use power of education over impressionable students when they're in situations where they can be pressured or coerced to do things uh, to participate in different sorts of religious exercise. So you know, there's case law about not coercing students to to pray in school or to participate in other sorts of religious activities. And so the school is analogizing or pointing to some of that case law and saying, here, if we allowed this sort of activity by the coach to go forward, then we'd be running into some of those prohibitions where the Supreme Court has interpreted the Establishment Clause. So is the school basically afraid of getting sued by parents? I think that 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 is a concern that they're raising. Whether or not the parents would win or that would actually be a strong claim is a different question, but that's certainly the sort of argument that they're making is that they could run into other sorts of prohibitions on the other side if they are too permissive or accommodating of this coach. Where does it play in that he's a coach in a position of authority and when he prays in the middle of the field, his athletes may feel pressured to pray with him? I think that was one of the things that the Supreme Court was suggesting. Uh, This case went up to the Supreme Court previously, and the Supreme Court denied certiorari, and then it went back down to the Ninth Circuit. And one of the reasons that the Supreme Court explained it was denying the case then is because there were some factual issues that that seemed to be unresolved. So unresolved factual questions like, was the coach really on duty or not? Is this really sort of part of his job performance? And I think facts that might be relevant to this question are, do students actually feel pressured to 
to participate? Uh, is there any evidence of that? Because that's something that the government can't just sort of make a claim about. That, you know, they'd have to really back up that sort of an argument. But the Supreme Court did seem concerned about the fact that if a teacher, just because they're a role model or just because students look to them, a teacher or coach can't engage in any outward manifestation of religious faith, that would be a pretty remarkable expansion of the law in a way that at least Justice Alito was suggesting would be problematic. This case has been going on for some time, Stephanie. Tell us what's been happening procedurally. Right. So when he was first bringing this case, it was um, based on the school district's decision to let him go because he was giving a prayer um, at the 50-yard line. And there's some history about what had led up to that prayer, but we can talk about that later. But uh, so that was appealed to the Ninth Circuit, and he lost. Then it was appealed to the Supreme Court, and all of this is sort of in a, a preliminary procedural posture. The Supreme Court said there were too many factual issues to take the case, but that they were concerned about the way that the Ninth Circuit had described the legal standard, and they sent it back. So now the case has traveled again through a district court proceeding uh, there was just oral argument at the Ninth Circuit this week um, about the case. And then we'll see if, if they rule against him, then I imagine he'll probably apply to the Supreme Court again. And, and if they rule for him, then it will be a question of whether the school board wants to appeal to the Supreme Court or not. And of course, review at the Supreme Court is discretionary. So it, the court can decide whether it wants to take that case. During the, the proceedings below, did he explain why he had to pray at the 50-yard line after the game while there are players on the field? So the, his attorney was asked about that in oral argument and, and just described his religious beliefs were that he needed to immediately give gratitude um, for the game. He was willing to wait until all the players exited the field. Um, and so you know, he, there was no need for him to be in view of the players. He said he would have been okay even waiting like, five minutes. Um, and f- for a number of years, he had agreed with a request from the, the school district not to say any prayers where students were participating or were doing it at the same time of, as him, uh, you know, some of his students are athletes. So um, that, that was just the way that he described his religious belief. But the, the school board asked him basically to do the prayer at a different time somewhere else. And he said that would just that would be contrary to what he felt compelled to do to show gratitude to God. So now, listening to the Ninth Circuit arguments, were there any issues that the judges were particularly focused on? The judges were focused on a few things that I thought were interesting. That There was a lot of trying to make sure they understood the timeline and uh, making sure that they knew whether or not there had been any coercion of students involved uh, or whether they, they had felt coerced because that's relevant to some of the establishment clause jurisprudence. And so um, Coach Kennedy's lawyer was arguing that at, you know, after he had received the request from the school district years ago not to involve students, he had complied with that. Um, there are no clear complaints that are focused on his behavior um, after that when he's having the prayer on his own, not involving students. And uh, and the court was just trying to make sure they understood the student involvement and how that, that might affect their experience at the school. They were also interested in uh, some of the other claims that Coach Kennedy brought 
under the free exercise clause and under Title VII, that he was being discriminated against for his religious beliefs. And the, the judges seemed interested in trying to figure out, had the school board actually tried to offer an accommodation? Had they actually been protective of his religious beliefs? Um, and was the rule that the school board had espoused in its communication with the coach too broad, such that it would have really troubling effects on basically stripping any sort of public employee of their ability to practice their religion at all, anytime they were in view of students. So one of the judges, Judge Morgan Christen, said, I strained to see this being a brief personal private prayer because the coach had expressed his plans in media interviews and social media posts and talks to local churches. How did that question, he seems like he's expressing his opinion there. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and that that was definitely an important part of the argument. The attorney's response there was that, um, you know, private in the sense that he's not including the students. He's not, um, you know, trying to include other members of the audience. There has been media about him defending his right to continue to do that. And so he's trying to, in, in the court of law and the court of public opinion tried to defend his ability to continue, but that doesn't mean that the prayer itself, he's trying to make it a spectacle. And we know that this is the panel that refused to grant a TRO, which is a different standard, but still. Did you see the court leaning in any direction? I think that the court is going to be probably engaged in a pretty fact-specific analysis here. There were a couple times where the court was describing what they thought the timeline had been or what involvement of students had been. And and sometimes attorneys on both sides were correcting them and pointing them to other areas in the record. So I think the court's ruling is likely going to focus on whether or not when they go back and look at that record evidence, the photos, the videos, um, and, and the declarations from students, does it seem like there is some sort of actual coercion going on here or not? Um, I think it's likely that we'll see a ruling in that vein. I'm not sure if they will address the free exercise or the Title VII arguments at much length, um, but I think that those are an important part of the case and one that the Supreme Court, four justices at the Supreme Court when this came up last time, signaled that, that they're interested in and they think um, would have had enough merit that would have been worthwhile to consider the last time around. You mentioned that before. The court, the Supreme Court, didn't take the case, but explain mm-hmm. that opinion by uh, Justice Alito and, and who joined in it. That's right. So the court declined to take the case on the free speech grounds because they said that there were some a lot of factual issues about whether or not he was on duty or off duty or what exactly was sort of involved um, in the scope of his teaching and, and what the school district was requiring surrounding that. Uh, so that's what they were saying about the speech claim. But that's why they denied the cert petition. At least this is what Justice Alito's um, concurring opinion said. But Justice Alito said no party has asked us to consider whether the district court, or excuse me, the school district was also violating Title VII or the free exercise clause in the First Amendment of the federal constitution. And indicated that there was some interest in considering those issues. And then um, there were three other justices that joined on to that opinion. So just suppose this case goes up to the Supreme Court. That seems to indicate there are at least four justices on the coach's side, let's say, putting it colloquially, 
on the coach's side, and then you also have Justice Amy Coney Barrett. And this is a court that is very protective of religious rights and seems to, in the last few years, even before Justice Barrett, lean in the direction of religious rights. Do you have any doubt that they would consider that this was within the coach's religious freedoms? I think what we can say with confidence is that the the court seems interested in reviewing those claims very carefully. Uh, I think the court would want to make sure that they understood some of those facts that they had questions about last time. Um, and, you know, I, I, I can't predict necessarily how they would rule, but I do think that they are, they would not rule the way that uh, they were concerned the Ninth Circuit had been sort of leaning towards previously, that, that any time a public employee is in view of students, they can't do anything religious, such that a teacher would even get in hot water if they said a private prayer over their lunch in view of students. So I think what we can confidently say is that sort of ruling is out of bounds and that the Supreme Court would, if this case made it up to the Supreme Court again, that the Supreme Court would pay a lot of attention to those other claims involving not just his free speech rights, but his free exercise rights um, and his rights under Title VII. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Stephanie. That's Stephanie Barkley, a professor at the University of Notre Dame Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg. Bloomberg.